everybody. We want to invite children to Children's Church, if you want to meet your teacher in the back. Um, as they're going, I just want to make two comments about what we sang. Um, first of all, when we, ran, when we sing um, uh, Mighty Fortress, one of the phrases says that Lord Sabaoth his name. And I don't know about you, I'm probably the only one in this room that thinks this. When I hear Lord Sabaoth, I think the Lord of the Sabbath. But Sabaoth is actually Hebrew for the Lord of hosts. So it's the Lord of a large army. It's not Sabbath. So I know you probably all understood that, but I got that wrong. So, um, so there you go. And um, then the other one I just want to make a brief comment on is our God is an awesome God. We have to be careful with that word awesome because today breakfast burritos are awesome. And God is not in the category of breakfast burritos. It is awesome. Our God is, is so full of awe and wonder. He is so huge and so wonderful that he is awesome. Uh, so, uh, you know, when we, we think about a pair of shoes or a breakfast burrito being awesome, that belittles the word. But in that context, it's, that's appropriate for us to say our God is awesome. He is uh, filled with awe and wonder. He is, he is a marvelous God. So I'm glad we sing that song, but we just got to get our heads around that, that word correctly. So before we start, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, you are indeed awesome, and you are indeed Lord of hosts. Uh, uh, myriads of angels team around you. They, they leap at your command, and they cry out constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, we forget um, how awesome you really are. And we let lesser things take that place. So, Lord, would you open our heart, hearts and our minds uh, to the true meaning of who you are, to be overwhelmed with how grand and how majestic you are. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for showing us through your word, through the prophets, and in latter days, through the person of Jesus Christ coming to be with us. And uh, that's one we're most grateful for. So, Lord, uh, thank you for walking with us and showing us who you really are. Uh, Father, you have commanded in the scriptures that we are to pray for uh, those in leadership and especially for uh, elected officials or uh, our governing officials. Here we elect them. And Lord, Tuesday we are having an, uh, an election. Uh, Father, we know for a fact that you raise up uh, kingdoms and you bring them down. You establish leaders, you use them for a purpose, and you, you debase them, you, you take them low. And Lord, just because we're in a democracy, that's no different. Um, we are part of the leadership of the country as we commit ourselves to elections, but you are still sovereign to raise up who you will. And so, Lord, we pray for our elections on uh, Tuesday. Lord, would you help us? Would you lead us? Would you cause us to elect people who would lead our country in a positive way? And one letter after their name doesn't determine right or wrong. It's the individual, the character of the individual. And so, Lord, would you please cause our nation to... Um, to elect righteous leaders who would um, lead the nation in, in freedom, in prosperity, in uh, righteousness, that we would make sure that the, the founding principles of our nation, that uh, liberty and justice for all would be for all. Um, Lord, have mercy on us, we pray. And uh, we come to you lifting up this election and trusting you for its results. And Lord, in the midst of all of that, no matter what happens in the elections, I pray for the church in America that we would be remain faithful to the true gospel, that we would preach your word, regardless of who's in control. And Lord, that we would be your ambassadors, pilgrims and aliens on this earth, and, and demonstrating your goodness to all people. So Lord, help us to do that. And to that end, I pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, 
that you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, would you apply your word in ways that um, might surprise us? And uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help me to not muddy that message, but to, uh, to confirm it and to make it clear to all of us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not sure what that rumble is, but I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to fill this place now, and we're going to burst out into the streets. And that's what that rumble, I was like, okay, bracing for impact. God's, God's going to show up. Wait a minute, I asked you. I didn't expect you to actually show up. <laughs> um, so, all right, we're in, we're in the book of Acts. And just as a reminder, the book of Acts is volume two of Luke's gospel. And what I said when we went through Luke's gospel is Luke is telling us what it means to be a disciple. He wrote to Theophilus and he said, I want you to be sure of the things you've been taught. Disciples are learners. They follow a master. They learn from their master. And so what we saw when we went through Acts was Jesus making disciples. And that was, that was the master teaching his disciples how to be disciples. And we learned some discipleship principles for that. Well, Acts is volume two. So now what we're seeing in Acts is the continuation of that story. We're watching Jesus' disciples make disciples. And so discipleship is still a theme that Luke is working through. Um, so that's, that's my theory approaching the book of Luke, or book of uh, Acts, is, uh, is we're continuing to work on what does it mean to be a disciple. We're at the end of chapter 13, and just I have to remind us of where we're at. So could you throw the map up real quick, AJ? Um, Paul and uh, Barnabas were sent from Antioch on their first missionary journey, and we're, we're in the middle of that missionary journey. So they sailed to Cyprus, that island. They traveled across it. And what we got told, what Luke told us about that journey was nothing about what they preached. Didn't quote a thing that they said, but he did at length detail for us a power encounter between a false, a Jewish false prophet and the word of God. And we watched what happened was the word of God wins. And the man was left blind for a period of time. After that, they sailed up to uh, Perga and then headed up to Antioch and Pisidia. And so that's where we're at now. What we got there, what Luke told us when we got to Antioch and Pisidia was this lengthy recording of what Paul was preaching. So he really slowed down the narration and told us exactly what the message was. And that's what we, we went through last week. And you remember I was super frustrated because we just had to end it. We were running out of time. And what we're going to do is we're going to finish the rest of that story this week. And so I've got to kind of back up a little bit and remind us of what that sermon was about. Uh, because what we've just read this morning, what, what Rich read for us, is the implications of that. So what happened was, um, my theory was that when uh, Sergius Paulus, the, the proconsul in Paphos, was converted, he told Paul about his family who lived in Antioch and said, why don't you go up there and talk to them? So that's why he headed to Antioch. The road from Perga to Antioch is not straight and level. That's a three-quarters of a mile climb through really rough mountains. That's where, where criminals would go and hide. So Rome had to go and invade that. Why would he head straight to Antioch, of all places? There were other easier routes that he could have take, taken. So my theory was that Sergius Paulus had pointed him in that direction. So he got there, and he heads to the, the synagogue on the, on the Sabbath. This was going to be his custom is he's going to go to the synagogue and he's going to begin to preach. So when we looked at his message, uh, do you remember his message started with this kind of recounting of redemptive history? But he started at the Exodus. He didn't start with the, the Abrahamic promise. He didn't start with Noah. He didn't start with creation. He starts with the Exodus. 
And that's where he began to tell the story. And as he goes through the story of, of Israel's history, he kind of cherry picks it a little bit. Because once he gets to a certain point, he talks about David and then leaps forward and, oh, by the way, Jesus. So he skips a whole bunch of history. And so what I was saying is he's working towards a very specific end. And where he wound up with is this Jesus really is the Messiah. And you can tell that because David prophesied that his son would not undergo decay. He wouldn't be corrupted. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, his body wouldn't fall apart. David fell apart. Solomon's dust by now. All the kings in between there are all dead and decayed. But Jesus Christ died and then rose again, never to see decay. And so what Paul says is, he says, that proves that Jesus is the Messiah because he can fulfill that promise that no other king could ever fulfill. They've all corrupted. They've all decayed. They've all decomposed. But Jesus will never decompose. And so that was that proof. And then what he does with it is he says, therefore, there is forgiveness of sins in his name. Because he's broken that bond, because he's risen again, there is forgiveness in his name. And he does what the law of Moses could never do. Now, what I said last week is there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses. It does what it was designed to do, which is say, that's sin. And it can't atone for sin. It can atone for a specific sin, but it can't take sin away. And so what Paul told them is Jesus Christ can do what Moses could never do. He can actually bear your sins away from you. So that was the sermon that we heard last week. And here's the repercussions of it. Here's what happens because of that. So this week, as we take up the rest of that story, what we're going to see is the, uh, the, the comparison of the disciples of Jesus and the Word of God. Those two ideas fit together. How do they fit together? Well, first we'll look at the word preached, which we did last week. So now we get the last little tail end of that. And then we'll see the Word of God applied and then finally, the word of God received and rejected. So that's, that's where we're going to go. So here's how it begins. The next Sabbath, uh, oh, I'm sorry, they, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So Paul has just preached this wonderful sermon, this dynamite recounting of redemptive history. He has applied numerous scriptures to prove that Jesus is the Christ, and the service is over. And so as the synagogue breaks up, as people are beginning to disperse, a group of people follow Paul and, si and, uh, and Barnabas, and they beg them, please come back next week. We want to hear this again. So that, that's the anticipation. Do you see the results of that sermon now have, are resonating in the hearts of these people? Is they're begging to hear more. And after they leave, um, many Jews and devout uh, converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. They, they trail after him. They're like, we have heard something we have never heard before. I would imagine that they're thinking, these scriptures are spinning in my head and they're beginning to make sense now. This Jesus might be the answer. It might be the key that unlocks all of these scriptures. And so they're following um, Paul and Barnabas. And as Paul and Barnabas are leaving, as they're heading back to their house or going to Sonic for a cheeseburger or who knows what, what he does is it says that they, Paul and Barnabas then turn to the crowd and they urge them to continue in the grace of God. They urge them to continue in the grace of God. They've just heard the grace of God. They've just heard Moses can't deliver you, Jesus can. And what he urges them is now that you've attached to this, now that you're drawn to this message, please continue with the grace. So one of the things that, that Paul will later say in Galatians, which we're in the area of Galatia, 
He's going to write to the churches in Galatia, and he's going to talk about those who fall from grace. What does that mean? What could that mean? If he, if he turns to these folk and urges them to continue in grace, and then he writes later and says, there are some who fall from grace, does that mean that we can somehow lose grace? That we can somehow turn off grace in our lives? Well, if you remember, I've, I've said this a number of times, you're going to get sick of me saying it because I'll probably say it for the rest of my preaching career. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is God's favor resting on us. It's his love, his, his positive disposition to us. And it is based on nothing but his desire, his goodwill. He has decided that he would put his grace on us. So you can't out his grace. You can't run away from his grace. His grace is unmerited. So then what does it mean continue in the grace and those who fall from grace? If it's unmerited, how can we, how can we lose it? Well, the way we can, quote unquote, lose it would be is to stop trusting in it. You see, the problem that, that's going to come up, and it's going to come up pretty soon, is how does Moses interact with this new covenant promise of Jesus? And, and the way this works is, if we are to continue in grace, what we're told is stop trusting in law to have your relationship with God, and instead trust in God to have your relationship with God. Jesus has taken care of that problem for you. You don't have to obey law to have relationship with God. So all that not falling from grace means is continue to trust that the Lord has made your relationship right. Trust that. Whereas to fall from grace would be to say, I don't believe that. I think if I work hard enough, if I'm a good enough person, if I have the right set of morals, if I, if I have the right set of things I do and don't do, then God will be happy with me. That would be to fall from grace because it would look grace in the face and say, grace, you're not good enough. So that's why he would look at these folks, these brand new converts to the, the grace of Jesus Christ and say, continue in this. Continue to trust that Jesus has taken care of it for you. Continue to trust that obeying the law of Moses will not make you right with God. Only Jesus Christ can do that because Jesus has totally dealt with your sin. So that's what he means, I think, when he says, they, have, they urged them to continue in the grace of God, to continue to trust that Jesus was enough. And this is a brand new message to them. They needed to hear that. They needed to be encouraged. Don't forget this. And so it's encouraging to look at them and say, they're going, please come back and tell us this again. Please tell us one more time. We need to hear this over and over. So if you get sick of me preaching about grace, you're in good company. <laughs> That, that, that's kind of a common thing. We need to be reminded of grace often. There's an apocryphal saying, it's been attributed to Martin Luther, but it, it probably never happened, but it's still a good thing. It's still a good way of saying it. Is the, the apocryphal story that probably didn't happen was people would come to Luther and say, Herr Luther, why do you preach the gospel every Sunday over and over and over again? And he goes, because every week you forget it. And, and it's so easy. Grace is very foreign to us. To say, I'm going to trust that God loves me because he loves me is really hard to do. It just is really tough to do because you're not in control. You've let go of the reins and you said, Lord, I'm trusting you to take control. And that's just an unnatural for us. We want to say, well, you know, I got up this morning and I did my Bible study really well and I, I underlined two or three verses. And so God must really be happy with me because I've done this. Well, yeah, God's really happy that you did that. But that's not the basis of your relationship. So continue in the grace of God 
all of us. Let's continue in the grace of God. So that's the results of that sermon. That is the, the, um, the, the results of the preaching of the sermon is grace. It's not go out and try harder. It's not, boy, if you were just the right kind of person, God would be happy with you. The results of that sermon is, since Jesus has done all of this, since he's fulfilled all these promises, since he is who he says he is, continue in the grace of God. So that's the message. That's, that's the word preached. Now, what comes next in the next two sections, verses 44 through the end, is the phrase, the word of the Lord comes up about six times in that, and it gets quoted once. So really the major theme of what the rest of this is, is the word of God. So let's take a look at that. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city showed up to hear the word of the Lord. Now, it's not like all of Antioch could fit in a synagogue. Um, the synagogues that we've uncovered from that time period were probably about smaller than this room. They weren't huge synagogues. So what does it mean that the whole city showed up to hear the word of the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean that they walked in the building. It, it probably meant... As they're approaching the building, there's a huge crowd outside the synagogue. And Paul is like, wow, I guess we're doing an outside service today. And the leaders are like, uh, we don't have enough food for all these people. <laughs> we're not going to have enough snacks. Somebody brew more coffee. We're going to run out pretty quick. Almost the whole city, however much almost is, it's a lot, isn't it? It's a huge turnout has turned up to hear this. But when the Jews saw the crowds... But can be a great word in the Bible. In this case, it's not. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So as Paul begins to address the crowd, the Jews are looking at the crowd and they're jealous. Why would they be jealous? Jews at that time period were not known as a proselytizing religion. There's your seminary educated word of the day, proselytizing. What that means is they were not interested in going out and making converts so much. Uh, they would welcome people in, but they were not a, a heavily missionary like we would think of Christianity as very missionary. Uh, the Jews at that time were not so much. Now, it's true that Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, you guys would cross the seas to make one disciple and he would be twice the son of hell that you are. There's, there's church growth for you. Look, you. look your folks in the face and say, They're you're a children of hell and any disciple you make is twice the children of hell you are. That, that's pretty rough. So does it sound like they would go and make disciples? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean they would go and do foreign missions. They might go find a Jew and say, oh, you need to be part of the Pharisee crowd because we got it right. So the Jews were not known as a missionary group. So what does it mean that they were jealous? Why would they be jealous? Well, I think they're jealous because imagine it from, from the, the synagogue leader's perspective. How long has this synagogue been here? We have been in the same location for 30 years in this nice building, and nobody has ever showed up in these kind of numbers. Uh, then this Paul guy shows up, and look at the crowds. Because what's the most important thing in the synagogue at that point? Me. My synagogue. My crowd. Not, they didn't walk up and go, you know what, this synagogue has been here for 30 years, and we've never had a crowd like this. Look at what God's doing now. They become jealous. It's all about me and what, what do I get out of this and what's going on. And so what happens is Paul begins to address the crowd. We don't get this sermon. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't get this sermon. But I'm thinking it's along the same lines of what he preached before. I'm here to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ and that he is here to save you. And so what happens is he starts quoting scriptures at him. Do you remember last week how many scriptures he quoted? There was a string of them. 
So I'm sure he's doing the same kind of thing. But what it says is these Jews, these jealous Jews began to contradict what Paul spoke. So he would say, you know, in the prophet of so-and-so, it says this. And they would, oh, you're reading that wrong. That's not what that means. And they're yelling back at him. So they're contradicting. They're trying to confuse his message. And then what it says after that is they says that they were reviling him. That's how the ESV translates it. You know what the word is in Greek? Blasphemy. It's blasphemy. So the ESV says reviling. The King James and the New American Standard say blaspheming. The NIV says heaped abuse, which is kind of odd because it's a present tense word. And the CSB, the New uh, Christian Standard Bible, says insulting him. The problem is it doesn't say who they were addressing this blasphemy to because blasphemy could be, it's not strictly a religious term like we use it now. It could be disrespecting. It could be insulting. It could be that kind of thing. The problem is it's just this word hanging at the end of the sentence and it's not pointing at anybody. So in my opinion, it's the best to translate it as blaspheming as the King James and the New American do. And the second reason I say that is because what's the response of Paul and Barnabas? They don't get upset about being, being slandered. Instead, they respond by being very angry that somebody would speak this way about God. So if Paul is preaching Jesus, they would be blaspheming by saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. So I think blasphemy is a better way to translate that. Um, mark this down in your calendars. I just disagreed with the ESV translation. I'm kind of an ESV fanboy, but it, it happens. Occasionally, I think other translations get it. So they're contradicting him. They're blaspheming. They're saying Jesus was just a poor Jewish farmer or you know, he was a, a bad rabbi or whatever they're saying, but it's insulting. And so what the response is, is Paul and Barnabas speak out boldly. They don't back down. When there's bad teaching, they don't slow down. They don't say, oh, well, we don't want to offend anybody. Instead, they turn around and they speak out boldly. They strike out even, even more firmly. And they turn to the Jews and they say, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So why is it necessary that the word be spoken to them first? Why would that be necessary? Well, Paul goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach the gospel. He expects them to hear and to understand because they have a common theological background. They have a common theological vocabulary. When Paul says God, they're thinking of the same thing. So one of the reasons that it would be appropriate, it would be necessary for, um, for Paul to preach the gospel first to the Jews is because they had the oracles of God. They had the Old Testament, it was their scriptures. So when they stood up in the synagogue and they read from the scriptures, they were reading from the Old Testament, from the Bible, the same Bible that Paul was preaching from. The message was intended to come to them. The second reason is because the Messiah came from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He was born of a Jewish family. He, he was raised in a Jewish home. He observed Passover. He was circumcised on the eighth day. So the first people that that message should go to is those Jews. This is who you were preached. This is who the message came from. This is who should get it first. So he says, it's necessary that I come and preach to you first. And, and we could go on. There's numerous places where he talks about the, uh, the covenants and the promise were for the Jews. But the problem is, since you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, since you don't want to hear it, 
Since you've turned away from it, we're turning to the Gentiles. That was not an afterthought. That was not a, well, we got a crowd, we might as well preach to who's here. Do you remember Paul's conversion? What did Ananias come and tell him? That you would be a witness to all these different people, including to the Jews. So this isn't something that, that came up, you know, they just made it up on the last moment. As a matter of fact, listen to where they go. We're turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So he appeals, that's from Isaiah, Isaiah 49. He goes to Isaiah and he said, the prophets have said this. The prophets had said the message would go to the Gentiles. What you've just done is fulfill all the prophecies. You continue to do what they were doing in Jerusalem. Remember he said in Jerusalem, they didn't understand the prophets who were read every, every uh, um, Sabbath. They didn't get it. And so they fulfilled every single one of those promises by killing Jesus. He just did the same thing. He looked at them and he said, you're doing the same thing. Isaiah said that the message would go to the, to the Gentiles. So look at this. Look at what happens here. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. See if this doesn't fit. Um, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God became my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's what he quoted. So that first part is a little confusing because it's a little jumbled. Isaiah starts and he says, now the Lord says, stop. He does a little parenthesis. He introduces who this Lord is. This Lord who says this, he's the one who made me in my mother's womb so that I would do this. He, he created me to be a prophet and, he, uh, and I'm honored in his eyes and the Lord has become my strength. That God, that, that's the one I'm talking about. This is what he said. Listen to what he says. Is it too little that you would be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Isaiah, your primary mission is to the people of Israel. Your primary mission is to the tribes of Jacob. That's too small. That's too easy. We can do that. That's nothing. Better than that, I'm going to make you a light to the Gentiles. That's how big your mission is going to be. That's what's going to happen. So that's what he's saying. And Paul quotes that, and he says, for the Lord commanded us, saying this. Do you see what he just did? He quoted Isaiah, who wrote 700 years earlier, and said this was a command to me, to Barnabas and I, today, to do this thing. He looked to the word, and he, he said that applies for us. 700 years earlier. Just a little context. You want, you want to know what happened 700 years ago? Not today, but 700 years ago in our history? The Renaissance began in Italy 700 years ago. The Ming Dynasty started in China 700 years ago. The Ottoman Empire was founded in Turkey 700 years ago. The Black Plague hit England 700 years ago. The Hundred Years' War began between England and France 700 years ago. Chaucer published the Canterbury Tales, and Wycliffe completed the first translation of the Bible 700 years ago. Anything from there talking to you today to do a specific thing? That's just history. The word of God extends beyond that. The word of God is living and active. The word of God can speak to Paul 700 years later and say, go out and do this thing. That's the power of the word of God. So he quotes from the Old Testament and he says, this is what I've been told. The Lord commanded us with this Old Testament quote. 
Now, in April of this year, a pastor near Atlanta named Andy Stanley preached a sermon, and what he said in his sermon is that Christians should unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. Now, I wouldn't bring this up, and I'm not here to bag on Andy Stanley because I don't know him. But when he said that, that really troubled me. I, the, when the sermon was published, people were commenting on it. And I wouldn't bring it up except for Pastor Stanley has doubled down on that. He responded to critics in Christianity Today, and he wrote a book defending that position called Irresistible, reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. So he, he's, he's doubled down on this. And here's what he says. Here's a couple of his quotes. Uh, actually, what's kind of surprising is uh, when he defends this idea of unhitching the Christian faith from the Old Testament scriptures, is he quotes Acts 15. <laughs> We're almost there, gang. We're at 13. We're almost to 14. We're that close. And I'm coming to a very different conclusion than Pastor Stanley is. So listen to how he reasons. He says, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. He says, they unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of Jewish scriptures. He says, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us, can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. The only reason I'm bringing this up is not to, to, to bag on, on, on Andy Stanley. He's a pastor of a very large church. He writes books. I want you to be guarded against this error. This is a grave mistake. Does it sound like what we just read? Does it sound like Paul unhitched from the Old Testament? He did not. He preached from the Old Testament. He preached Jesus from the Old Testament. He preached values and morals from the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about why pastors should be paid, he says, you don't muzzle an ox while it's grinding. He quotes the law, and he applies it to the church in that day. That couldn't be any less than what uh, Pastor Stanley is talking about here. So we can't make the mistake of unhitching, whatever that means, our Christianity from the Old Testament. It is the foundation. It is the bedrock of our faith. Now, where the complication comes in is he, and I read his article in Christianity Today, and it took me about three milliseconds to go, well, there's the problem. He says the old covenant is done and over with. Jesus has put the old covenant away. Hail and amen, brother. That is right out of Hebrews. This old covenant is fading away. Where he then goes is so he then equates the old covenant to the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is in the Old Testament. It is not the Old Testament. The Old Covenant is done. Do, are we offering sacrifices? Am I a priest from the order of Levite? No, none, all of that's done. That was all fading away because our true and our real high priest offered the perfect sacrifice. He ascended into the real temple in heaven, and he stands ever making intercession on our behalf before the true and living God. So to build a temple and to cut an animal's throat at this point would be to insult our Savior and say, that's, that's nice, but we got to go back to this. So I agree, the old covenant is done. But the old covenant is not the covenant with Abraham. It's not the covenant with David. It's not the covenant with Noah. It's not the covenant with Adam and Eve. It was the Mosaic covenant. And that portion of our relationship is over. So it's a complicated issue, and I can understand how somebody who was not educated might have a problem with that. There's, there's a lot of nuance to it. But Stanley's a pastor, and he should know better. 
So don't fall for that mistake. The relationship between the old covenant, Moses, and the new covenant is complicated, and we're going to work through it as we go through Acts. But don't for a second think that the Old Testament has nothing to say to the new covenant or the New Testament. When I was at, uh, I went to Westminster in California here for a prospective students um, thing uh, a number of years ago. I went to TEDS. I didn't go to Westminster. But I went down there, and I was having lunch, and I was talking with this guy, another prospective student. And we're chit-chatting. And he goes, you know, the Old Testament has nothing to say to the New Testament believer. Not a word. It doesn't say anything to us. And my fork hovered in midair. And I looked at him, and I went, what? I couldn't believe he was saying that. It was like... What do you mean? Have you read the New Testament? <laughs> Here's my point. This is why I'm kind of grinding on this, is what Paul is doing is appealing to the authority of Scripture to make his case that he has a, a way, he has a reason to go to the Gentiles. He does not say, well, you know, the Old Testament was wrong about the Gentiles and we're doing a new thing. He says the Old Covenant, not only does the, the, the Old Testament, rather, not only does the Old Testament permit it, it commands me to go to the Gentiles. It says, I will be a light to the Gentiles. I must go to the Gentiles because the Old Testament told me to. Therefore, I will. So don't make that mistake of thinking that the Old Testament has nothing to say to us. It has a lot to say to us. It's really important to us. So when Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, reproach, correction, and training in righteousness, guess what scripture he's talking about? The Old Testament was all they had. They were writing the New Testament at the time. So he looks to the Old Testament and says, it's profitable for us today. Now, the reason I'm grinding on this is because what this section is about is the role of the Word of God in our lives as disciples. It talks about how we relate to the Word of God. What does the Word of God do for us? So it doesn't unhitch. It doesn't go, God doesn't look at the Old Testament and go, let's, do a, let's have a do-over. That wasn't what I really meant. It means the Old Testament served a function. It served a purpose. And once Jesus has come, that purpose has reached its climax. It's reached its fulfillment. Now, in the book of Acts, at this point, the temple still stands. Later in the book of Acts, Paul will go to the temple. He will shave his head and he will offer a, a vow. And he'll pay for another gentleman to come in and fulfill their vows in the temple. But it ain't going to last much longer. It's going to be eradicated. It's going to be removed. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is now thrown away. It simply means that part of the way God dealt with people is done. He had a specific purpose. That purpose was the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus is here, we don't need that anymore. There's still lessons to be learned from it, but it doesn't go away. So don't fall for that error. Don't buy that book either. Um, just don't fall for that error. The word of God is authoritative, and Paul demonstrates that. So he turns and he tells the crowd, you guys had to preach, I, I preached the gospel to you, and you have voted yourself unworthy. Therefore, we're turning to the Gentiles. And what's the response from the Gentiles? Well, that's the word of God received and rejected now. When the Gentiles heard that, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the response of the Gentiles is, wait a minute, really? That's for us? We get to hear that message? This is awesome. They rejoice. What was the response of some of the Jews? It wasn't all the Jews, but some of the Jews. What was their response? Jealousy. That, that, that. Paul's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I know the Bible better than he does. 
But the Gentiles hear the good news and they rejoice. They glorify the word. Isn't the Lord good to write this word to us? They glorified the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord, again, spread throughout the whole region. How do you suppose the word of the Lord spread throughout that whole region? How do you think that got around? You think of Facebook posts? Maybe a couple of memes they could repost and, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and a smiley face in the background or something. How do you think it got around in those days? Those Gentiles, their response was not intellectual assent. Hmm, well, that's very interesting, Paul. Thank you for that. I'll have to go home and study that. Their response is deeper. It's emotional. They rejoice. I got a new iPhone. I got iPhone XR. And I really love it. It's really a good phone. I'm bugging people because I talk about it. It's something I love. It's something I enjoy. It pales in comparison to salvation in Jesus Christ. Why did these Gentiles talk about what they've just heard? Because they love it. Because it reaches down into their heart and they go, this is tremendous news. The God who created everything has welcomed us in. This is great. So they go to the market and they can't help but talk about that because it's the biggest thing on their mind. That's the biggest thing in their heart. That's what really grips them. That's how the word of the Lord spreads throughout the region. It doesn't happen because somebody else is excited about it. It happens because these people were excited about it. And so the region hears the word of the Lord. But, again, in this section, just but's not getting a break, man. It's always going to be a bad one. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing and leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the city. No, the district. So who are these devout women and uh, the leading men of the city? Um, this is kind of contentious. It's, it's not really clear. Uh, some people think that there were Jewish women who were well off in the city and they were therefore considered devout women in the city doing this. Um, but devout, I think, also is used to apply to these Gentiles who were converts. So this could be um, converts to Judaism or people who were sympathetic to Judaism. Whatever they are, whoever they are, they are devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. So what they do is they go to the city council, they appear to the people in power and say, you have got to get rid of Paul. He and Barnabas, they're causing all kinds of problems. Did you see the crowd in the street last week? Did you see what they did to our synagogue? There's trash everywhere. You gotta get these men out of here. And so they stir him up and they send Paul and, um, and Barnabas away, chase him out of the district. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. So do you remember where Iconium was on the map? More of Iconium next week. We don't have to look at it. We'll spend a lot of time in Iconium next week. So, or not next week, week after. Um, so the, they, they shake off the dust off their feet. That was what Jesus told the 72 to do when he sent them out on a mission. He said, when you go to a village, preach the gospel. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. If they receive you, great. If not, leave and shake the dust off, their, off your shoes. It's not worthy to cling to you. Anything from that city. Disciples making disciples. Guess what these disciples did? They shook the dust off their feet and they left. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They have just sent Paul away. They have just chased him off. And the disciples are not going, well, bummer. They're filled with joy. Be Why is that? Why is it they could watch Paul depart and they could still be filled with joy? Because joy is not happiness. 
Joy is something greater than happiness. Joy is this hope, this rooted, I know something better is coming. That's joy. So they could watch Paul and Barnabas walk away and be sad and miss their brother and sister and go, man, they, they brought us great news. And we're really sad to see them go, but they can't take my joy. Because my joy is not rooted in Paul and Barnabas. It's rooted in Jesus Christ who died and rose for me. So joy is something greater than just happiness. So that's, that's where they go with this. So pay attention to this. This is what the word of God does in the life of the disciples according to this. First of all, they desire it. Verse 42, they begged that Paul and Barnabas would come back the next week and tell them more. When they heard this, they rejoiced. They, they were overflowing with joy because of that. The disciples and the word of God, the disciples love the word of God. They desire it. They want it. They want more of it. They beg for more of it. So do you read your Bible any day other than Sunday? Please tell me you read it on Sunday. Do you read your Bible any other day? Do you desire to read your Bible or is it a chore? A disciple goes to his scriptures and says, I want to know more about Jesus. I want to hear more about the story of redemption. I want to know what the end of the story is. I want to hear all of these things. And so we go to the Bible because we're disciples of Jesus and we love it. We beg for more. We spend time in it. Do you read it because you have to or because you desire to? Now, to be fair, there are times when you just feel like you have to, and that's okay. But if your entire Bible reading program is, well, I got to slog through three chapters this morning, every day, worry. And if you worry, there's one answer for worry. Call out to the Lord in prayer. Say, Lord, I'm not getting it. I don't understand what's going on. I'm not loving this. Cause me to love this. The people begged for more. And so here's the good news. When it captures your heart, when it finally begins to take root, it feeds itself and says, oh, wait, I got that. I want more. Oh, wait, I got that. I want more. I want that. I want that. It turns into not a job you have to do. It turns into a desire that you want to do. That's what it means to become a disciple. So today you get up, tomorrow morning you get up and you open your Bible and you go, I just don't feel like reading. Do it anyway. Read it anyway. Let it begin to condition your heart to say, I love this and I want more. So they begged for more. The next thing is, what did the disciples do with the word? They recognized its authority and its sufficiency. The Lord commanded us saying. The Lord commanded us saying. They, when Paul looked to the word, he didn't say, well, this is about you guys. Uh, you know, th this verse right here, you really need to hear this. He, said, he looked at the word and he said, the Lord commanded us. I must obey what the Lord says. And he spoke through his word. Disciples recognize the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. The issue is nuanced. And like I said, it's, it's a little complicated. But all scripture is inspired. And it's profitable for training, reproof, correction, um, and, and training in righteousness. All scripture, including the genealogies. They're inspired too, and they're profitable, including the law about bodily discharges. They're inspired, and they're profitable. It can be hard, and I, and I get it. You know, hey, when I'm doing my Bible study, my, my read through the Bible in a year, I get to Leviticus, and my eyes begin to glaze a little bit, and I hit numbers and just kind of go, ah, okay. 
It can be hard when you get to the end of Joshua and he's talking about the border went from this place that I don't know where it is to that place where I don't know where it is. And then it went all the way over to this other place where I still don't know where it is. And you're looking at it going, well, uh, it can be hard. It just, it just can be. But the hope that you pin your hope on, the thing you put your, your hat on is you say, all scripture is inspired and profitable. Just because I'm reading it and I don't get it doesn't mean it's not profitable at this moment. It means I just don't get it. And it's okay. So there will be times when you won't love reading the Bible. But is that the pattern? Is that the condition of your heart? Is that what happens over and over again? Or when you read the Bible and you recognize, you have to recognize its authority and its sufficiency, do you read the word and nod and go, mm, yes, nice note? Or do you hear God's authoritative voice in that? So when he says, this is what's going to happen at the end, there's going to be this glorious city and there's not going to be a temple in it. Instead, the, the lamb and God will be right at the center of it. Will dwell right in the middle of it. No walls, no curtains, no priests, none of that. Do you hear that and go, that's authoritative. It feels my, like my life is about to come to an end now. It feels like everything I've built in my life is about to fall to ruin. But I have this promise that I can hold on to. There's a day when there won't be a temple. There won't be a curtain. God will be right there. That's the authoritative word of God, too. And that's the part you need to hold on to. And then finally, what do disciples do with the word of God? They spread the word of God. And the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. And it wasn't because of Paul. Paul was kicked out of the region. Right? He, he got driven out of that district. The word spread. So here's what happens, is if the word captures your heart, if, if it gets beyond your head, if it makes it down your brainstem, past your shoulders, and winds up leveling somewhere around here and gets into your heart, you begin to love it, you begin to desire it. You can't help but talk about it. Now, I'm not talking about um, my iPhone. You know, in, in what, three weeks I'll be done with it? It'll be like, oh, it's a, it's a phone. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just naturally part of your life this desire for the word. And it doesn't mean just quoting a reference at somebody. John 3.16, hold the sign up. It means having that sign embedded in your heart, approaching the world, understanding the universe from that biblical worldview and saying, this is what makes sense. This is how this works. This is what, I know you're struggling with this. Here's the real thing. Here's what's really going on because your brain has soaked in the word. It's bubbled through your entire brain constantly. It also means, and, and where we're going with that, is it means taking the scripture in context. Um, in context means you don't just grab a verse and pull it out and say, this is what this is, and yay. It means reading the verses around and understanding what it's saying to who it's saying it, why it's saying it, what's going on. But it also means reading it in our context. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That means sometimes it cuts with the grain and sometimes it cuts against the grain. So we need to read it in our context, in the, the setting that we live in. So you read the word and you get the idea of this is what it says. This is the promise. This is the, the true statement. This is the authoritative word of God. Now, what do I do with it here today? Reading it in our context, that's the bigger idea. And then once you've soaked your mind in it, once you've understood it, you look at it and you go, this is God's word. Just like it's God's unmerited favor, 
This is God's word. Yeah, he wrote it through Paul. Yeah, he wrote it through Isaiah. Yeah, sure, he, he wrote it through Peter. God's word to me. He has inspired it so that I might hear that, so that I might hold on to it. So here's the, here's the encouragement. Are you there yet? You feeling it? You, you get up every morning and just can't wait to get to your Bible? Don't lie to me. <laughs> I can't wait to get to my coffee, and then I'll get to my Bible. Here's the great promise, though. Paul tells us, continue in the grace. Continue to walk in this. Continue to learn to train your heart to love the way God loves. Continue in the grace of God. Peter tells us, grow in the grace of God. He tells us to grow in it. It's possible for you to grow in the grace of God. So what you do is you start with, this is what I want. You don't grow in grace by being legalistic about it, right? He said, you can't, Jesus has come to do what the law of Moses can't. So don't be legalistic about it, but don't be negligent of it either. So you approach studying the word as a disciple under the authoritative word of God. You approach it by saying, Lord, I want to know more about you. And that's the promise that will begin to change your heart. That's what will begin to grip your heart. And then you'll begin to love it. Then you'll continue to grow in it. Then you'll continue to walk in it. And then it'll be much harder for you to go, I'm good enough and I'm a really great guy, and so God must really love me. It's possible to look at that, to grow an understanding of the scripture and go, you know, I'm not that great, and God still loves me. And I think the key to that is, and I glazed over it in case you, you noticed, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, the Calvinists in the room are getting all excited because, hey, we're going to talk about predestination, and the Arminians are getting excited because, oh my gosh, he's going to talk about predestination, this is going to be bad. Here's the, here's the basic truth of that statement. As many as were appointed. It's a term that is perfectly translated by the word appointed. A, a governor would appoint somebody to a position. It's the same idea. A military person would appoint someone to guard this fence, and that would be what they did. Someone has appointed you to believe. You have been appointed to believe. It's not those who appointed themselves. It's someone has appointed you. God's on your side in this. The Holy Spirit is conspiring to lead you into greater and greater faith, to trust him more and more. As many as were appointed, not most of those who were appointed, not some of those who were appointed, as many as were appointed, that same number believed. God's out to get you. So when you're struggling, when, when the word is not just you know, the sweetest thing you can think of in the morning, when prayer seems like it's really hard to do, as many as were appointed, believed. God's working for you. He's not working against you. So keep growing. Keep working on it. Struggle. What is it that you would fight for in your day? You, you, you want to go do this thing, and you fight for the, the time. You make sure to get that thing done so you can get that one thing you want in the day. What will you fight for? Will you fight for your heart to love the word of God? Will you wrestle with that and say, I know this is the right thing to do. Will you cry out and say, Lord, I can't do this. I need your help. Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me, guide me. And then will you set apart the time and say, okay, I'm clearing this, this spot, and this is what I'm going to try to do. Is it worth fighting for to continue in grace? Is it worth fighting for to grow in grace? Is it worth fighting for to hear all the things that God has said to you? I think it is. I think it's really important. So till you get better, 
Know that you need it. Know that you need to do that. That's step one, is knowing I'm not doing it, and I think I should. That's your first step. You're already growing in grace at that point. If you think, I'm not doing it, and I don't need it because I'm too good for this, you are not growing in grace. But if you know it and you struggle with it, you're growing, and that's good news. So seek to make that part of your life. That's what disciples do. That's what Luke wrote that section. He, he, he preached us this wonderful sermon, and then at the end, he elevates the word of God and says, this is what the word of God does for you. That's a pattern of God's grace. He gives you his word so that you might know it, so that he can give you more of his grace. It's unmerited. You don't earn it that way. You simply grow in it that way. How many flowers do you know earn their, their buds? Somebody comes up with a watering pitcher and waters them, and they grow. They just do it naturally. So God is coming, and he's pouring his word on you, and he's expecting you to grow. That, that's growing in grace. Another pattern that God has given us to grow in grace is the worship service. We, we come together. We hear the word preached. We hear the word read. We pray together. We sing about God's greatness together. And then once a month at our church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 is, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim the gospel. You proclaim his name until he comes again. As often as you do this, do you have to, do you have to think about it really hard in order to do it? All you have to do is pick up the cup and take a drink, and you have proclaimed his death until he comes again. All you have to do is take the cracker in your hand and eat it, and you've proclaimed his death until he comes again. That's a pattern that will train you to rely on that, not yourself. Jesus promised us, this bread is my body broken for you. This blood is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're going to celebrate now. Here at Trinity, we practice what's called an open table. And that means you don't have to be a member or regular attender of Trinity, but it's the Lord's Supper. And you need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other thing that happens is Paul warns, if you eat or drink in an unworthy manner, what does it mean to eat or drink in an unworthy manner? He says, not discerning the body. And some people say, well, that means because the bread is the body of Christ. It's the physical body. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at. He says, if you, if you don't discern the body, then you're not eating in a, in a worthy manner. What it means is if you are not desiring the truth that Jesus died for your sins, that you're, you believe that you're sufficient, that I can do this on my own, I can be good enough, you're eating in an unworthy manner because you're not proclaiming his death. You're saying his death doesn't have anything to do with you. So to eat in a worthy manner is to look at this and go, Jesus, you died to take away my sin. There is forgiveness in no other name under heaven but yours. This is the only way I'm going to be made right. And that's why all you have to do is pick up the cup and drink. Take the, the cracker and eat, and you have proclaimed his death. The gospel has spoken to your heart one more time. It just has. So here, what we're going to do is I'm going to call them. Guys, would you come up on, uh, um, to help serve? Uh, we'll pass the elements. Uh, take the element and hold it, and we will eat together, and then we'll drink together. And then, um, and then that will be our communion. So.